Hello, fam. Love and salutations, good people. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Slow Wealth Podcast. My name is Kendra. And this is Ramon. As we have with our previous shows, we start off with a powerful motivational quote for y'all. Um, today is more like a sonnet. Starts by saying, that's not my job. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Uh. Mm. Uh. When I think of that, I think of that quote that you used to say uh, when we started in this industry and we would stay up late at night and we were thinking about how to strategize to build a real estate empire, basically how to get off the corporate plantation. That That's, you know, the ultimate goal. Um, and the quote was something like, you do now what everybody can't do so they can, so you can live how everybody can't live. How did you put that? I can't even it was, remember. It was, it was kind of like one of the quotes that I know of that, um, you, you basically do what you can now. You, you build a life that you want that you don't have to take a vacation from. Right. So it's kind of like the same thing where you do you do what you need to do now, um, so you can play later, you know, and you don't really have to stop. You can pick and choose when you want to. I don't remember how that quote went exactly, but yeah, I do remember saying that. Yeah, I used to say that all the time, and I'd be like, whatever. <laughs> but again, everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody are four people, and you think about those four people when you're going through um, your you know, the strategy of your life and, you know, what it is that you want to do and how everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody can help you get to your goals because everybody isn't equipped to have the tools that you have. Somebody will give you the information, whether it be us or anybody that's in this real estate industry, or if you have a mentor as we have, um, anybody you know, can do it, but nobody wants to do the work that you're doing. So that's, that's kind of putting this quote into perspective again. Everybody can do it. Somebody's going to do it. Let that somebody be you. Yeah. Why not be you? (laughs) Why not be you? Why not be you? This this is a industry for everyone. Um, and we are on Spotify, Google play, Apple Podcast. We have a Facebook page, all at Slow Wealth. Again, that's Slow Success Lives on Elevation Wealth Podcast. And uh, we, you can email us if you have any comments or suggestions or questions, questions as we've been getting um, at invest at slowwealth.com. That's I N V E S T at S L O E W E A L T H.com. And let's start, you know, let's start the show off on a good foot. Um, we had a small hiatus because of someone's birth. 
birthday. <laughs> he uh, had a uh, wonderful uh, birthday. At least I hope so. Oh, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. That's good. I'm about to go smoke a little something late. No weed, though. No, no weed. weed. Just a cigar. cigar. He's a cigar guy. I like cigars. Yeah. So you got plenty of those. You got a couple of yeah. nice ones, too. Yeah. Oh, and the, the port wine. The port wine. Yeah, that port wine. Port that wine was, was nice. Yeah, the, the boxing of it was really I mean, you want to open that one. <laughs> we should, like, put a picture so they can see. <laughs> I might see. have to. I might have to just so they can see. Like, oh, man. So, yeah. Right. so, yeah, let's get into it. Let's All go. right. So, um, just going to ask you, you know, what's your motivation for this week? For this week... You know what? I'm, I'm going to say the quote that I heard that got me going. All right. That I like. That for this I wrote. Week. It's really for life. For life. Okay. But right. for this week, and I have it written down on our whiteboard that I write a lot of stuff. And this one is from, uh, what's his name? Miles. No, no. Monroe. Dr. Monroe. Yeah, Dr. Miles Monroe. Dr. Miles Monroe. Rest in peace, rest in power. If you guys don't know about him, YouTube him. Great, great guy. Great motivational speaker. Dr. Miles Monroe. Yes, sir, Dr. Miles. Uh, now, he said problems are only problems if you acknowledge them so. And in other words, problems are opportunities to grow. So if you feel like you had a problem or have a problem, it's only that if you acknowledge it as that. And I think that's really deep because, you know, we all have problems. We all have things we go through. And it does nothing. It does you no good to really acknowledge it as a problem because it brings about stress, you know, agony, all kinds of things. And, you know, you, you are what you think, right? And so if you think positive positive results come about and so I try to keep that in my head every day going through this you know especially in this day and time now where you got this coronavirus and you know people losing their jobs you know unemployment people you know probably going to start losing their homes and all of these things you know we're all going through it's affecting everyone um, but I think if we keep that in our head keep that in the back of your mind um, no matter what it is and it's hard you know what I'm saying? you might your car might break down you know, uh, you might get that unexpected bill. You know, I'm sure we all been through that. You know, you're like, golly, don't don't acknowledge it. Just look at it as an opportunity to grow. You know, what did I do wrong, and what could I do the next time to have to try to prevent this? So that's uh that's my motivation right there. All right, keep a positive mind and and fruitful fruitful energy. Yes, definitely, definitely. That's that's great. Now, um, we should take some time also to get into the podcast, but just to start off, let's talk about the current housing market. Just, you know, a quick synopsis of what you think the housing market is, the direction it's going during the Rona virus time. I'm going to talk about what we, what we heard this morning uh, with the Redfin CEO. Oh, yeah. Where he That's mentioned the housing market crash coming. Um, but he mentioned that it's going to be the biggest in the big city. So like New York, Seattle, Frisco. Um, and one of the things that he said is affecting that 
is that a lot of these companies are allowing more employees to uh, work from home. So now you're talking about the space. Now these people can work from anywhere. Right. If you're working from home, I'm not tied to Frisco and where you might be paying $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom or a studio. Right, and a lot of these people relocated to these major cities because of their jobs. So you got to think, they're going to be, a lot of these people might be moving to smaller cities. So, you know, I mean, you might move, a lot of people might move from, you know, Frisco to Austin or Frisco to, shoot, Des Moines, Iowa. Who knows, you know, (laughs) because you can work from anywhere. So if I can work from anywhere and I'm getting the same pay, why would, you know, unless there's something in that city that's really keeping you there, whether, you know, it's maybe all of your family or you, you just love living by the ocean or whatever, if you're not stuck or tied to where you're living, you can take that money and go live for cheaper in a lot of other cities. So there's going to be a lot of cities from what he was saying that might see a boom because they've done the study and they see the statistics where more people are researching smaller cities so you know those cities might be something like austin or austin you know it's still a growing city but it's not as big as some other cities you know like the seattles and, and, and the friscos and things like that so uh, right now i mean i think the housing market is still good but i do think that like he said if you're thinking about investing just do a little research into the city that you guys live in to see because you might start seeing an influx of people coming, which is really going to drive the housing prices up. So those smaller cities might see a boom like Seattle did or Denver. Those smaller cities might start seeing, you might start seeing that boom. So, you know, that might be really your good opportunity to get in. So, yeah, I think that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, um, and when he talks about that boom in Seattle and Denver, I mean, we both have experiences in both places. Um, not as far as investing, but, you know, living or whatever, <laughs> having people mm-hmm. live there. Um, and it was crazy how when we first arrived at Seattle, it wasn't nearly what it is today. And we moved there About five, five years ago. Yeah, five years ago. So a lot can happen in a short amount of time. And Denver had that boom as well where, you know, the average house um, in certain parts of Denver, you could get, you know, for 200000 whereas now, four to $500,000, you know. And that's just for a house. But, um, you know, it, it just... Start start researching, like, really, I think one indicator is, like, Redfin or Realtor.com or Zillow. Look at the housing. Look at what's on the market now and see how long it stays on there. Yeah. And see how much yeah. they're they're going for. You know, if you start seeing that they're only you know, on the market for, you know, a week, two weeks, you know, something less than what they are now, that might give you, that might be a little indicator that you may have some people moving in. And and then, you know, just look at where you live. If you start seeing more cars, you know, like that's not that's not an anomaly. Like there's some people coming in, you know, so that might be indicator. So there's a few indicators out there to let you know that, oh, you know what, let me buy something. Because people coming in, that's just going to dry the price up. Yeah. You want to get in, you know, at the right time. You know, better late than never. Especially if there's, a like, a new corporation or a company. Yep. That's definitely an indicator, you know, of the economic growth of whatever city, town, or province you live in. 
Um, so yeah, like Ramon says, when things are looming, you'll definitely know it. Um, <laughs> start seeing more cars on the highway, or you know, just look at like you know Amazon. Like they can't work from home, but look how much money Amazon has made since this coronavirus. You know, so they're they're continuously hiring. I think they they hiring like what is it, like a hundred thousand more people uh, within the company. I think I saw a few weeks ago because of all the influx mm-hmm. of online orders they've gotten. And then you know, if this coronavirus comes back in the in the winter time, you know that may force even more online ordering. Yes. So just just uh, pay attention to your market. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the podcast. All right, so today we are going to discuss where we left off on podcast five, which is um, a continuum of making the offer and counter offers. Um, As we've done before, we're taking you step by step to buy your first multi-unit, which is duplex, two units, triplex, three units, or quadplex, four units. if but you, these these this still works if you just buying a house. It's just that if you're buying that house, house to rent or it condo. out. Yeah, yeah, if you're buying it to rent it out, you know this is where. But you know the the scale, you know tends you know further to your direction, the higher you go up. Yeah, unless you said duplex, triplex, fourplex. Right, right. And uh, this is um, on residential loans, so FHA, conventional those types of loans for single family house um, or not single family housing, uh, multi-unit, excuse me, or mm-hmm. single family housing. Um, so we'll start, in, we're going to start off with getting an offer accepted. Ramon, in, in the past, we've always been concerned about how to submit an offer, not physically submit an offer or, you know, where you're saying, hey, we want to offer them this. But how do you find out what an acceptable offer is? Like, how do you know that your offer will be acceptable? Well, uh, it depends on the market. So if you're in a seller's market, you know that you're going to have to make a strong offer because there's other people out there that's making strong offers. And that strong offer might be somebody that's bringing cash, or somebody that's putting a lot of money down, 20, 25, 30%. Um, the pre-qualified, you know, the pre-approval letter, that, you know, that's, you have to have that. But when the seller is getting these offers, this these are the things that they're looking at. They're looking at, you know, how much you're putting down, how much you're putting down for your earnest money, um, and your terms, you know, because um, they're just trying to see who has a good chance of, getting this loan to close. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's just some key factors. So if you guys are using like FHA and you're in the seller's market, you really kind of got to be strategic because a lot of sellers, you know, uh, don't like FHA because they're a little stringent. Um, you know, as far as them, uh, you know, your property has to look a certain way. Um and just you not putting as much money down. You know, there may be a few things, you know, the reason why that seller doesn't want to deal with that. So um, I think getting an acceptable offer is doing your research on that property and the area. 
talking with your agent, seeing how much that property is really worth. Because if they're offering, or if they're asking for 500000 but you know properties in that area uh, is has really only sold for about four seventy. They may just be throwing that number out there just to test the market and see who's buying, see who who's willing to pay for that. Don't pay more for a property, really, just to get it. That's really kind of my first thing. Um, I know a lot of people want to get into the market, but don't over leverage yourself. Well, see, I'm gonna go back a couple was it a couple episodes ago that we said that we offered what they were asking uh-huh. on some properties and we knew it was more than what that property was worth or what uh-huh. had sold in the past what would be a reason for as you said you know don't don't pay more than it's worth but however you know that the offer that you're making for the asking amount the listed amount is more than it's worth why would why would you why would you do that well one reason is to get them on the contract so you know that's the that's the ultimate goal is to get somebody on the contract um but with that you want to make sure your contract has certain contingencies put in place as we talked about i believe in the last podcast yes certain contingencies that's put in place where if the terms are not to your liking or that you can do, you're able to back out of that contract, get your earnest money, and go to the next deal. So you may offer the seller what he's asking to get him on a contract and then do your due diligence and then see if maybe now I can kind of negotiate a better deal. Because sellers will be more willing to negotiate with you while you're under contract versus before you get under contract. Right. Right. And then um, just making an acceptable offer on the Auburn property is uh, one of the things that we, you know, we can discuss with our audience. Like, how did we, how did we find, or how did we come to a conclusion of what an acceptable offer was? And, and just to, you know, throw this out there, our agent, Nick, was also instrumental in helping us make an acceptable offer but well i mean you kind of really don't know what the exact number is until you make the offer but sometimes you have to put yourself in the place of the seller but then you also have to do your uh, due diligence by looking at okay how long has this property been on the market um has it have the has it had any other offers um and why do you think it's still on the market? You know, um, just looking at the property, you know, uh, maybe find out who the seller is. I would do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I would look and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I have done it a lot, um, which is, you know, I guess you could say a tip. You know, I would look in the property, the county property records, and I would see who owns that property. And now when you're talking about uh, duplexes, triplexes, four units, most of the time, those properties are in the actual individual owner's name. When you get into the five units and up, then a lot of the time, those properties are in LLCs. So you won't know who actually owns the property. You'll just see the name of the LLC. It'll show you an address. So if you just wanted to, to contact the owner, 
But like you said, duplexes, triplexes, four units, houses. A lot of times those is in an individual property owner's name. So I'll find out the name and I might Google them, you know, or see if they're on Facebook, see what they look like, see who they are. You know, <laughs> I mean, hey, I do that. <laughs> it's funny, but you know what? The thing is, you might learn something about that because if you find out they're older and maybe it's just, maybe it's an older lady mm-hmm. and she's, she's the only one that's on the loan or that's selling the property. It's not a couple. Mm-hmm. You might know, okay, she may be older. She may be just trying to get rid of the property. Right. You know, maybe her husband passed. And sometimes I found that out, mm-hmm. that the husband passed. It was one property we was looking at and I found that the husband passed and it was uh, the wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, so she's trying to, you know, She's trying to sell it. She's trying to get rid of it. She may be older, maybe tired of, you know, managing herself. Mm-hmm. And you may find that if the property looks like it's um, just cosmetically, it, it needs some work. Then that'll, that'll give me indication like, oh, okay, she's been managing that property herself, maybe for years, or her and her husband, he passed. Now she's ready to move on. Now, that doesn't mean take advantage of her, but that means, that, you know, you get her under contract. If the deal works for her, and it works for you, then that's the best deal. Right. Honestly, it has to work for it has to work for both sides. It can't just be working for you and not for the seller because at some point that seller may get cold feet and may not want to sell it for that price and find a way to get out. So you always want to make sure that that deal works for you and the seller. You feel me? So yeah, that's what I would say. But um, specifically. Okay, so the offer about the offer. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Sorry, so I got property. I got a little off track. So. No, that's okay. So that's okay. our property that we had bought, they it was four ninety nine. It had been on the market three hundred some days. So honestly, I wish we would have offered them lower, but I think at this point we had missed out on so many properties that I didn't want to take a chance on offering them something lower, and then they not respond to us. Or they just reject the offer altogether. I was just kind of like, hey, let's just let's just give them what they're asking for. All right. So that was pretty much our main goal on that one was was give them what they're asking for, get under contract, because we know they're gonna take it. It's been sitting on this long, and they dropped. I think they dropped the price two times. Two times, yeah. Because I think they started out about five thirty, five twenty five. So no, they, they had, started off higher than that, they, and then they kept dropping it, and then they dropped it down thirty thousand. <laughs> That's another indicator, too, because what a lot of realtors do, and that'll let you kind of know how good they are, is you'll, you'll see them, they might put a property out there for 700000 And you might be thinking, like, that, that's kind of high. And then a week later, they'll drop it down to six fifty. That's a big drop. It is. You should never do that as an agent. You shouldn't, you shouldn't put it, even if you're just testing the market, that's a big drop to drop it. Mm-hmm. Because that's letting people know that oh okay you just dropped the fifty thousand in one week. Who's you saying say you? that because we were advised to do that? Yeah, we, when we, we sold yeah. the property, but we'll go through that in a future show. Much later, but this is just kind of a right now. Just telling you, like, for an agent to drop your prop to drop a property fifty thousand dollars in a week. If I'm a buyer, I'm looking at that like okay, you'll go lower. Right. And if I'm a seller, I really don't like that because I'm like, okay, you're making my property look really cheap. <laughs> and you might give it, you might just be giving it away. So you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do that if you're selling your property. But if you're the buyer, that's good for you. Cause you're like, oh, they just dropped their fifty thousand. 
okay, now I'm gonna offer them six twenty. You know what I mean? Because they might they might be willing to take that. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, to go back, we get you give them what they're asking for a lot of time, depending on your market, and depending on the the property, how long it's been sitting there. If you just want to get them on a contract, if you know, look, I'll give you what you're asking for, get you on a contract, do the inspection, and then I'll negotiate and try to get down to a, a better price. Right, right. So um, we know what an acceptable offer is, how to make an acceptable offer, how to review the um, the market that's in the area of the subject property that the buyer is interested in purchasing to allow you to make an acceptable offer. Mm-hmm. What are the penalties? Let's say you make an offer, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, ooh, I don't know about that offer. <laughs> now that, you know, because sometimes people have, you know, buyer's remorse. Is this is this the best time to have buyer's remorse after your offer is accepted? Well, I mean, anytime. I mean, that's why you should be sure about your offer before you submit it. Because once you submit it, if that owner accepts it, that is now a contractual agreement. So whatever that agreement is, you have to abide by it. But that's where your contingencies come in place. So I hope you guys hear that. Your contingencies are your get-out-of-jail-free card. If you ever play Monopoly... That is your get-out-of-jail-free card is your contingency. So if, like she said, if you put in an offer and then you find out something later and you're like, oh, sh- I don't like that. I- can I take that back? And let's say he already signed it. You might go in there and say, okay, you know what? I got seven days on my uh, inspection contingency. Let me just wait one day and then back out. Now, you know, we're not saying to do that. But if you have your buyer's remorse and you're like, hey, I don't want to lose out on my earnest money, I got cold feet, I'm just not ready, or whatever the deal is, then make sure your contingencies is right because that's the only thing that'll save you. You're not going to be able to call a seller up and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I decided I don't want to spend $500,000. Yeah, so. yeah, I didn't mean to make that offer, you know. Uh, let me get my money back, you know. Yeah, that's not going to work, so. Right. Not at all. Not at all because you are... You are responsible and... It's a legal contract. It is a legally binding contract, Uh especially if you're over 18, you are coherent Uh (laughs) and cognizant of what you have done. Um, You definitely want to make sure that, you know, you follow through as a buyer with your intentions on purchasing a property. Uh Also, okay. So this is a good time to talk about addendums. An addendum um, to a real estate contract or purchase agreement. We kind of spoke about um, purchase agree- purchase and sell agreements in a previous podcast. It's a it's like it says addendum. So it's something that you add a document that you add um, to the original contract at the time that it's prepared. It um, will explain. Um, information indicate other requirements that aren't specifically spelled out on the original contract. Can you talk a little bit about that when you make an offer? Yeah, so the addendums, um, you may not really use addendums a lot. It just depends on the situation. But like she said, addendum is just a form 
that you're adding to the contract. So uh, in a case that... Talk about the addendums that we added or that we had added to our uh, Auburn property because we did have an addendum added to extend the inspection phase. Yeah, I believe we had to. Uh, so in the case where, let's say you um, had the contract written up, had your contingencies and everything put in there, and for your inspection phase, you only put that you needed five days for the inspection. So if you put down five days for the inspection, let's say you had the inspector come out and he you know, inspected the roof, all of that good stuff. And let's say he inspected your plumbing. And let's say he said, you know what? I, I think there may be a leak somewhere because I turned the water on in the kitchen and I flushed the toilet and it was not really running good. And then I, I uh, you know, some things that say, let's say he heard and said, hey, you know what? You might want to do an inspection on the plumbing. But let's say you're now four days into your inspection. You only got one more day. You know that by the time that you order uh, or have a plumber come out to inspect the plumbing, you're going to need more time because they got to come out, inspect the plumbing, send you a report, and then you got to review it. So you may say to your realtor, hey, I need you to write up an addendum to give to the seller and let them know that I need more time for uh, to inspect the plumbing because I just got my inspection report back and he said there might be some issues with the plumbing. I need to have that inspected. So your realtor will write up an addendum, basically just telling the seller, hey, I need we need, uh, you know, let's say five more days um, to do further inspections. Now, the seller can, can say no. They can say, no, I don't want you to inspect the plumbing. Now, that'll throw up some red flags for you. You know, the seller said, no, nah, I don't want you to inspect the plumbing. And you have a chance to back out. Because he can he cannot deny you to do further inspections and keep your earnest money. So if he says, no, nah, I don't want you to do no more inspection on the plumbing, then you have a choice to say, okay, do I want to just disregard what the inspectors say and not inspect the plumbing? Or do I want to just, you know, say, hey, okay, we'll, we'll back out, get our earnest money, and go to the next property. So most of the time, the, the seller will say, okay, you'll sign the addendum. He'll send it to the, to the agent to have the seller sign. And then once that's signed on both sides, now you have extended your inspection period to go ahead and do your more inspection. So that's, that's basically what an addendum. There's other reasons you can use an addendum for, but as far as inspection, that would be one occurrence that you would use it. Right. Yeah, um, you definitely want to, if you have the benefit to add an um, addendum, you you want to do that because that will allow you that ample time to complete inspections or whatever you and your agent have discussed and the reasons that you need to add the uh, addendum to your original contract. Now, remember there's contingencies and there's addendums. In this case, we're just talking specifically about the added um, document, which is the addendum to your original purchase and sell agreement. Also, escalation clauses. Now, the escalation clauses can be heaven sent <laughs> so that you're not, you know, when you're making an offer, you're not continuously going back and forth. Um, Ramon, can you explain a little bit about how the escalation clause worked for us and some of the properties that we were interested in before? we um, decided on the Auburn property. 
So yeah, to kind of go back to the, uh, when you actually make your offer, because we didn't use it on that property, but we did use it on a, I want to say one or two other properties that we did make offers on, um, but I don't, they don't think they ever got accepted. But when you're making mm-hmm. offers, um, like you said, if you're especially from the seller's market, the seller may not want to go back and forth with you. Meaning, if you make your first offer, if it's not good, they may not respond to you. Or they may hit you with one counter offer. So if you offer five hundred thousand, and his property is listed for five twenty, he may counter you at five hundred fifteen. Then you may say, okay, I'll counter him back at five ten. That it may stop after that. He may get a better offer that's for five twenty. What he asked for. So basically, you're just putting a limit, a maximum amount that you'll bid essentially on a property it's kind of like a so to prevent so so basically to prevent the back and forth between you and the seller and also so, so you like don't an auction a little bit a little bit but also so you don't lose the seller's interest okay because like i said if he if his property is 520 and let's say he's getting multiple offers you offer him 505 he let's say he got a couple offers at 510 515 he may not respond to you Cause you was the lowest offer. Mm-hmm. Now you don't know that because you don't know what anybody's offering. Right. He may not respond to you, or he may respond to you, but he may counter you back at five fifteen. But see, he may get so many offers that he may stop replying to people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He may stop. He may just say, "You know what? I'm gonna go with the highest person. Whoever offers me five twenty or closer to that, I'm taking it," and just disregard everyone's offer. So to avoid that. You can do. You can put in your contract with this what is called an escalation clause. So you will tell your realtor he's asking for five twenty. I'll give him his five twenty, but I don't want to get that to him initially. So let's make our first offer five hundred five thousand. And what he'll say is, okay, how much in increments do you want to basically uh, rebid? Mm-hmm. So you can say. Offer him, make our first offer, 505000 When he gets offers in, whoever offers him the highest offer, I want you to give him $1,000 more than that until he accepts my offer. But don't go over 520000 So if you offer five hundred five, and let's say two people offer him five ten and five fifteen, then you'll make your offer. It'll automatically put your offer to five sixteen. Because the highest was five fifteen, and you told you put in the contract, I'll give you a thousand over the highest offer, so you'll automatically go to five sixteen. Now, if nobody makes another offer, if no one else has an escalation clause in their contract, that seller will take your offer because you'll be the highest. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He still can deny you. He still can say, No, I don't want that. But if he's taking the highest offer, he'll take yours. Right. So. Like like I said, as long as he as long as he doesn't go higher than five twenty, your contract can stipulate that you will outbid whoever makes the highest offer by a thousand dollars as long as it doesn't go over that. Now a thousand doesn't have to be you can put five hundred. But if you just wanna, you know, say look, I'll do a thousand more than whoever makes the highest offer. Then you don't have to go back and forth. 
Okay, that's wow. That's a great explanation of that. <laughs> I don't think I could have done as great as that. Um, it's a little nugget. Yeah, that definitely is. And another nugget that we actually, um, you know, kind of uh, amongst ourselves have have gone back and forth on is dual agency. Use or having dun, a dun, dual dun. agent. <laughs> Uh, well, well, I mean, you know, we, we, we discussed it. We, at first we're going to leave it out of the show, but I was like, you know, now that he talked about the escalation clause, I think it's a good time to throw in, um, how a dual agent can be, um, how about you explain helpful, can be helpful to you getting something under contract. Okay. Now a dual agent, just as a, uh, just you know, as a um, an explanation. First, sorry, look at you all. Uh huh. Tell them what doing being a dual agent is, okay. and then the dual agency. Okay, so we're going to talk about a dual agent. Okay. Okay, so a dual agent will work both sides of the sale. They'll work with the buyer or the seller first, because usually that's who finds this agent, and they'll work with the buyer. So that means that. When that seller goes to a listing agent and the listing agent lists their home or duplex, quadplex, triplex, whatever, um, the buyer comes in and calls and says, hey, I'm interested in this property. I don't have anybody to represent me. Can you represent me? The agent, the listing agent, who is essentially representing the seller, if they're a competent, knowledgeable agent, they can also represent the buyer. It also has to be accepted in your state because some states do not allow dual agents or dual agents. And you have to pull up a list of the states that don't allow There's it. eight. You can Google it whether or not it's in your state. Wherever you're listening, because it changed it can it can change because it just recently changed, you know, here in Texas too. Okay. So um you you definitely want to check in your state whether or not dual agent, dual agency is available to you. So you saying that if I got an agent and I'm selling a property and he's representing me, that means I'm paying him commission to sell my house. And let's say I'm giving him 3%. Both sides. No, just on this side, the seller side. Okay, just on the seller side. I'm giving him 3% to go and sell my house. Well, typically um, commission is paid Typically, commission is paid to both the no, no, I listing agent and the I, audience may not know that, though. Okay, okay. Typically, uh, commission is paid to the listing agent, 3%, and then um, the buyer's agent, which is also 3%. So 6% total of the purchase price. And we did talk about that a little bit last yeah, podcast. We, yeah, we talked about it briefly. Um, but with dual agency, you can, you can negotiate that because that agent is it paying someone else, you know, to, to, um, all right. So basically is what I'm saying is if I have an agent to sell my house, I'm paying them 3%. Hey, go sell my house. I want 500,000, whatever. The buyer is coming. Let's say the buyer doesn't have an agent. So they want to come buy my house. Mm-hmm. So they can ask my agent, who's representing me, to represent them also. Mm-hmm. So now, would he pay, would I pay, sorry, my agent 3% and pay 
him, his his 3% because the agent is representing both of us. So I'll be paying 6% still or like could I negotiate that? Because why would I pay 6% at this point when you're using my agent? You right. didn't come with your own agent. Yeah, well, I I wouldn't pay six percent. I I wouldn't. Um, why, I wouldn't. Why wouldn't you pay six percent? Because that agent is getting com- solely getting the commission, whereas they would have to split that six percent if the buyer had their own agent. I mean, so the it seller like pays the six percent, uh, you know, to the to their listing agent, so uh, their agent that's representing them, and then to the buyer's agent. But now you're representing both sides, you know, and as you representing both sides, you get the you you're solely getting that commission. So yeah, absolutely, I would negotiate. Okay, okay. So absolutely, it sounds I like would negotiate so as, it a, sound as like, a seller. Oh my god. So yeah. it sounds like it'd be beneficial if my agent, as a seller, represented the buyer. It sounds like I would save more money as a seller. Yeah, you would. You would during the closing process. You would. Now we'll we'll money. take out a brief moment, and we'll 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 let you explain why you don't necessarily like that, and then I'll say why I have no problem with it. So this is the caveat: we Ramon and I have discussed this. We've recorded this show a couple of times because of this subject of being <laughs> or using a dual agent. As an agent, they have a very very fine line to walk because you have to be a non-biased party that means that if the seller provides information like okay i want this place sold we're getting a divorce and i need this sold immediately you cannot divulge that you as the agent cannot divulge that information to the buyer whereas if the buyer had their own agent you would tell them that. So being who would, a, who would tell the, that to the agent? Well, I'm saying if the if the buyer's agent, if the buyer had their own agent. Oh, and they knew I was getting a and, divorce. And they knew the that you were getting a divorce. Okay, I got you. They would tell, you know, the hey, they're, you know, they're uh, motivated know. sellers. Uh, there you go. <laughs> they're That's motivated sellers. So Motivated seller. That's a key word. <laughs> They're motivated sellers, so let's hurry up and get this pushed through. You know, let's get this offer in because they're getting a divorce. Remember, that happened to us on the Cedar property. Uh, we found out that they were getting a divorce. But first, we assumed it because we couldn't get a lot of uh, transactions done in the I did my research. Yes, and Ramon did his research, as he said, where he goes on Facebook and all this other stuff to find out who it is that's selling to us. Now, we're not saying being stalkerish because you're not trying to find out exactly about their personal Oh, I went life. to his house. Not going to do it. No, no he is playing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, going back to dual, using a dual agent, um, that agent has a very fine line to walk. Now, repre- that agent is, again, representing the buyer and the seller. So let's say the buyer says, you know what? I just want $2 million. $2 million every year for the rest of my life i just won the lottery Uh. that agent that dual agent can't go to the seller and say we got some really motivated buyers they'll pay anything for this piece of crap they just won the lottery whereas (laughs) 
<laughs> You'd be stupid to tell the agent that in the first place. No, I mean, you know, some people are excited because, you know, during that time, you know, the, the endorphins are running high. You're like, man, you know, I can't believe I'm, I'm buying something to secure my family or so, like us to secure um, our legacy. So you just tell everybody. Yeah. I guess so. You know, some people might do that. I know, you know, you can't tell everybody, you know, about stuff like that, but some people might do that. Mm. But that agent cannot tell their sellers, hey, motivated buy- buyer just won the lottery. They can't do that. They have to say, hey, this, this is the offer that they made. Uh-huh. This is it. That 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 fine line. It's a very narrow, narrow line. Because if you divulge any information you even think is impertinent, unimportant, you can you can be sued for that by either side. So if the if the seller says, you know what, I'll take five thousand off, you can't go to the buyer and say, unless you have permission from your seller. Now you have to have it in writing. Not verbal, get it in writing. And I'm speaking from the agent's perspective. You can go to that buyer and say, they'll take 5000 less. And the buyer will say, you know what? Well, I was planning on paying 10000 more. You know, it, it's, it, it can be difficult. So again, if you do decide to use a dual agent, make sure that they are knowledgeable and competent. And they're... Not only could it be illegal in some states, a lot of brokerages don't allow it. However, you do want to ask if it would be beneficial or a detriment to you. Now I'll let Ramon take this over. Okay. Well, let me say why I don't have a problem with it. All right. So. This is why I don't have a problem with the dual agents because it can't. Well, let me say first, like you said, it's illegal in eight states, right? As of right now, so the other forty-two states is cool, and we'll probably look that up a little later, you know, or you know, maybe just get it out. Tell you where eight states is. It's a no-no. Right? I prefer that you know it's full disclosure that people research that themselves. Okay. All right. Well, let me just go ahead and say this. Okay. So I think it's a useful tool. Now, as she said, there's some agents um, in some states where it's allowed, but they are uncomfortable with doing it. So, you know, it's kind of like, because they, they're playing for both teams. You know, it's like Jordan playing for the Bulls and the Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, I don't know if they feel like it's unfair, um, but some agents I've encountered that I've talked to, they... You know, they say they can do it, but they're like, eh, I just don't know, you know, if I should do that. You know, it's probably better if you should, if you just had your own agent. And now, the reason why I say I'm cool with it is because, like she said, as a seller, from a seller standpoint, a situation where I normally would be paying 6% commission, that means 3% to my agent who's representing me and 3% to the buyer's agent who, who comes to us to buy the property. If I'm normally paying 6%, but now a buyer is coming to me saying, hey, I want the seller's agent. I want to represent you and me. Now I can go to my agent and say, okay, if you're going to represent both of us, I'm not going to pay you 6% commission. 
Now I'm only going to pay you 4%. If you want to do this deal, if you want this, this house sold, you want to get an extra 1% commission, right? Because normally you would have only got 3%. Now you can make an extra 1%, which don't get it twisted. That 1% could be a nice little chunk of change, right? So if you want that, I'm only going to give you 4% commission now. So now the selling agent, my agent as a seller, has a big incentive on now representing me and the buyer. You know, the, the seller and the buyer, right? Because yes. he can get 4% commission. Mm -hmm. For me, if, if, if a buyer, that's even better because now I'm coming to you to buy your property and I'm saving you money, right? Because now I have the direct line to you through your agent, who is now also my agent. Yeah, and I mean, that does definitely open up the line of communication because you don't have to worry about, okay, well, my agent isn't available right now, and then they have to leave a message for the other agent. You have that one agent that, you know, as the buyer, you're, you're speaking to them directly, and then that message is getting to the seller um, quickly also. So, I mean, yeah, that's definitely a positive as far as... Um, you know, expediting the sale. So just, just to kind of get an example, let's say the property we were going to buy, our first property, 500000 On a normal situation, that seller would have paid 6% commission. Three to his agent, three to our agent. 6% of 500000 is $30,000. Now, if we had... If we didn't have our own agent, we used the seller's agent, that buyer would have only paid 4%, which is 20000 So we saved, we could have saved that seller $10,000, <laughs> right? Now check it out. This is why I like it because you, you can use it. I know kidding. She said, I don't, I don't like that. But check it out. If you're in a buyer's market or seller's market, sorry, this is another tool that you could use to get that deal accepted. If other people are coming, let's say conventional, 20, 25% down, you might even have some people that's, that's paying cash. Now, granted, people that's paying cash, they're not going to get the seller what he wants because they're paying cash. You, they're probably going to close that in a, in a week. But most people, 20, 25% down. If I'm in a seller's market like that, and, I'm, and especially if I'm having an FHA loan, I got to be real competitive. So, yeah, a conventional buyer might offer him, you know, the 500000 let's say, and he might still be asking him to pay some of his closing costs or no closing costs. If I use that agent, I just save you $10,000. I got $10,000, too, also to work with, right? Because I might say, hey, I'm going to use your agent to represent me. I'm saving you $10,000. Also... I might need you to pay a half percent towards my closing costs or a percent. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, of that 10000 you know what I'm saying? I'm going to go to, you know, take a half percent or percent. So now I'm still getting some things for me, too. And I'm helping the buyer. I'm sorry, the seller. And that's, you know what I'm saying? Now I might get my deal accepted. You know what I'm saying? Because that now you never know what the seller might negotiate with, the, with his own agent. Because he might tell his agent, hey, if you represent that guy... I'm only going to pay you three and a half percent, you know, four, four and a half. You don't know. You can kind of talk that with the agent as well. You know, if you want, when you talk about a dual agent, when you approach them, 
you can say, hey, listen, if I if you can represent me to help us get this deal, could you ask the seller or would you be willing to, as an agent, would you be willing to only take 4%, right? Now, that's that's a 1% more than he was going to get anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of, I'm telling you, there's some agents that'll take that. They're like, oh, I can get I can get 4% on the deal, represent the buyer and the seller. Like you said, I know both sides now. I can know what the buyer's doing. I know what the seller's doing. Now, like she said, there's some people who think that's unethical. They're like, eh, I don't like that. No, listen, I'm talking about getting the deal done. As long as it's legal, as long as you're legal, you're not doing no conniving, you know, mischievous things, anything like that. Yeah, as long as it's nothing malicious. As long as it's nothing malicious. I'm just saying, hey, look. If I could talk to the seller, I'd talk to the seller. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, hey, bro, hey, can I get this deal? Like, I, how much you want? You know what I'm saying? Like, but you're talking to the agent. So when you're talking to the seller's agent, it's, it's as if you're talking to the seller. So, you know, you can call, and, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes I would call a seller's agent. Hey, you know, I see that you got this property listed. You know, it's been on there, the market however many days. Hey, um, is the seller motivated? You know, they'll tell you. There's been some agents like, yeah. He's kind of motivated, but he won't take under this amount. Mm-hmm. He won't take under five hundred thousand. You know, the property might have been listed at six hundred thousand. He might have dropped it two, three times, but he'll tell you, yeah, he's motivated, but he won't take under anything under this. Now, if you if you put an offer in under this number, I still got to submit it to him. You know, what I'm saying by law, but he's not gonna take it. So I'm just let you know up front. This, you know, and those are usually the offers that get no reply. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know. It just depends. You never know, though. But, you know, again, I could tell the agent at that time, you know, they'll ask you, hey, do you got do you have somebody representing you? I can say, no, I don't have an agent right now. But, hey, you know, uh, would you be willing to represent me? Get you get you a double? We call it a double pop. You know, double a double commission, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Double commission, you know what I'm saying? Hey, do you think the seller, you know, would you be willing to just take 4%? Let the seller just pay you 4%. You represent me and him, and we can get this deal slide through, you know, let's get it accepted. And, he'll, you know, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, yeah, hey, I'll represent you. Uh, but, hey, let me talk to the seller. Let me let me okay with the seller. And trust me, they might have other offers, but they're going to fight for your, for your offer because now instead of him normally getting 3%, he's about to get 4%. So he's going to talk to the seller and say, hey, that other offer, it, it, it's pretty good, but you might want to look at this guy's offer right here. You know what I'm saying? It's and, not supposed to happen, but y'all, it does happen. Of course it happens. If I'm normally, normally only getting 10 bucks and you're going to offer me 20, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to take that 20. So that's all I'm saying, y'all. I ain't saying go out there in droves and start calling. I'm just saying, if you have the opportunity... And it's legal in your state. It does no harm in asking. Because mm-hmm. like I said, they can tell you no, or they can tell you yes. That's it. But that, hey, that's another little nugget that might help you get that deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's what we're here for, to definitely provide information on how to get the offer accepted. So that's one way that you can get your offer accepted. Um, now, with that said... Uh. This is where we go into the inspections. Okay. 
Now, we're going to specifically talk about our inspection on the Auburn property. Oh, man, <laughs> that inspection is very interesting. Um, but how, how did you decide on an inspector? Uh, Google. I'm a Googler. I go on Google. I, I look at reviews. How long they've been, you know, in the business. Making sure they're bonded. Yeah, you got to make sure. And we're, you know, I, w I would think so by law. I don't, I've never met an inspector who wasn't Remember <laughs> you found somebody that was like, well, yeah, I can come out and, you know, look at, look at it. And you're like, oh, are you, is, is this a legitimate business? You know, because they have this. Oh, no, that was a guy, uh, a roofer. Oh, um, yeah. That was a And I, you know, don't let me forget that I do want to. Just throw that in there real quick. But as far as inspector, like you said, you want to make sure that they're licensed, bonded, uh, insured, uh, which as far as I know, unless the law is different somewhere else, by law they have to be all three because um, they have to take uh, state certifica certification and, and, you know, tests that they have to pass just to become an inspector. Uh, an inspector. Um, but I do look at reviews. I'm big on reviews and, and everything, but... You know, especially with inspectors, you really want to look at reviews um, because some inspectors are, all inspectors are not created equal. Mm -hmm. There are some inspectors that are thorough. Matter of fact, the one we had was pretty thorough. Yeah, he was recommended to us. He was recommended. Um, you Well, you found him and then you asked our agent, okay, here's a list of agent or a list of inspectors, excuse me. And our agent said, hey, I know an inspector. And you said, oh, yeah, it's all, you know. The rating for him. So you mm -hmm. kind of had already did, you know, or had done your due diligence. And uh, Nick, you know, um, kind of, you know, he, he applauded that not, and, um, couldn't, you know, condoned you going, moving forward with this inspector because he had used him uh, or recommended him um, in past sales. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, well, I will say most realtors have... Um, their own team of people, so they may they may know title escrow. They may have title and escrow that they you know use all the time. Uh, inspectors, um, handyman, handyman contractors. So you know you can ask your 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 realtor. Um, I suggest though to do your own research as well. Don't just use what they recommend because it doesn't mean that just because they recommend it doesn't mean that, that that person is good. You just never know. I mean, that's just me. I'll take your recommendations. I'll research them. But now I'll also look for my own people, too, um, just to have, just in case. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, um, during the inspection process, Ramon and I went to the inspection. A lot of times, as we said in previous uh, podcasts, you know, a lot of buyers would not show up for their own reasons um, because, you know, they assume that the inspector is going to give them all the information that they need to um, procure the sale. But we wanted to go because we wanted to see exactly what the inspector was seeing. Our inspector was so thorough. I mean, and you want that. However, a lot of the things that are listed, because what they're doing when they go through and inspect is looking for things that are wrong. 
Anything. If you have a thorough Anything. inspector, yeah. like, he's, he's looking for things that mm. that are that's wrong with the property, so you know it can be addressed, and that allows you to use some things as negotiating tools. Some things don't matter. Like if there is something that you can fix with a hammer and a nail, and it's and it's inexpensive, I would not use that as a negotiating tool. Nor would Ramon. But if it's something like the roof or plumbing or electrical, you know, something that has a substantial cost. Capital improvements. Capital improvements, substantial costs that are um, associated with, you know, purchasing this property. You definitely want to make sure that you're, you're going through that inspection report with a fine tooth comb and you use those capital improvements as negotiating tools, excuse me, to um, counter. And we'll get a we'll get into uh, counter offers a little bit um, later. But what do you suggest buyers do during that inspection? So you've chosen an inspector, you, the buyer, have chosen the inspector. Oh my God, I can't get my words out. What do you suggest that the buyers do? So after you get your inspector, you know, you, you find one that you like, you're comfortable with, um, you're comfortable with the cost. And, and again, when you call these inspectors, um, when, you, when you're asking, you're getting quotes, you're getting pricing, they're going to ask you, uh, you know, how, how old the building is. So you want to know that um, the square footage of the building and you want to know that. Um, it may be a couple other things, but some of the stuff they can they can find out on their own. But just to give you a good quote on what, what they're going to charge, those that's a couple of things they're going to ask you. Um, if in our in our situation where we had two duplexes, but it was on the same parcel, we had to uh, we had to really be specific about that because and it had they had two addresses, so that was you know the other weird thing is there was two separate addresses for both duplexes but they were on the same parcel so when he looks up one address he sees that one address and he sees the square footage but we had to tell him hey there's another duplex as well on the same parcel both owned by the same owner two different roofs two different roofs so we had to pay a little bit more so um you know but again when you get all the quotes and everything and you like the pricing um you set it in play you do have to pay for the inspection out of your own pocket um, and that's going to be due, I believe, after he does an inspection. Right. Um, before he sends you the report. Um, and so, like I said, when you get the inspection uh, scheduled, make sure you're there. Um, whoever's on the loan, make sure at least one person is there. Um, it's best if everybody's there. You know, uh, you know, one eye is good, but, you know, two is better. Two sets, yeah, two definitely two sets of eyes is much better. <laughs> it's much better, you know, because you, you just never know what you might miss. Um, and also, if you know a contractor or if you know somebody that's good, you know, fixing things, whether it be an electric, electrician or a plumber or roof or anybody, bring them along too because they can let you know if there's something in that property that you know you're going to have to fix, they'll let you know, and that's a good time to bring them, you know, so they can see that when you're walking through. Um, but you want to be in that inspection so you can see what's what. You know, when inspector is going through, asking questions, hey, you know, uh, what's this, what's that? And he'll tell you, you know, do you think that's bad? Yeah. Well, you know, they know everything that you need to have, what's approved um, by the state, city, whatever. 
and you can kind of now like she said he's going to name and tell you about a lot of stuff that's i'm not i'm not going to say not important but they're not a big issue yeah they're they're tri- they can be trifles i mean like one inspection report just as an example it discussed like light bulbs yeah, light bulb yeah, missing or I mean, door stoppers not behind the door, a door knob is missing, like things like that. That shouldn't be a, that shouldn't <laughs> that shouldn't be like a deal breaker for you. Now again, if you're buying a house and you and your family about to live in this house for thirty years or whatever, definitely you want to make sure everything right. But when you're talking about buying an investment property, you have to look at it totally different. When you when you do your inspection, you're not looking at that. Don't even pay attention to it because you'll you'll talk yourself out of it. You're looking only for the capital, uh, the main things. So that's roof. You want to know the structure of the roof. How you know the uh, the inspector when he gets up on the roof, he'll let you know you know about how much lifespan you have on this roof. If there's any leaks, if there's been any kind of uh, uh, repairs done at at a given time, he'll let you know all day. He'll give you pictures and all of that, so you'll see. The plumbing. It's a very detailed, itemized report. Itemized report. Every room, every inch. The plumbing. He'll let you know that he thinks there's any issues with the plumbing. Uh, the electrical. He'll he'll look at the electric uh, the electric boxes and you know he'll test the outlets and all of that. If any of them are not grounded or don't work, he'll let you know all of that in the report. You're looking at the roof, the electrical. The uh, the plumbing foundation, the foundation, those are the main things that you're looking for. Um, those are big ticket items that you're like, okay, those are the things that if there's something wrong with those or any of those, that's what you want to negotiate on that contract. Uh, when, like you said, we'll get into counter offers, those is what you'll want to kind of pinpoint. The other little minute things, paint and all that, you know, the paint on the outside, the exterior. You may just depend on how bad it is, but um, that's not a big ticket item as those other four. So um, that's that's really what you want to be looking at when you talk about the inspection. And with the inspection, um, with going under contract, excuse me, there is a certain amount of time that you want to have this inspection completed. So. Can you go over the timeline of the inspection? So before, like I said, you want to um, depend it on the size of the property. Now, if you are buying, let's say, a duplex, um, I'll say a duplex, triplex, fourplex. I personally want at least minimum seven days. Um, but I say anything between seven and ten days. Um, because I believe anything over five days, if it's five days, that's a Monday through Friday. That's uh, business days only. Not Weekends are not counted when you only have five days in your inspection. When you talk about 10 days, weekends are counted. So if you're talking about Thursday, you start your, your, uh, your inspection starts. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is counted all the way to 10 days. So um, you want to give yourself time depending on how long you have to find an inspector. If you didn't find an inspector, now you got to find one, and then you got to make sure he's available. Sometimes, you know, certain seasons, the inspector is not available, so you want to make sure he's available. Then you got to take time to do the the inspection. That's going to take, you know, maybe four to six hours, depending on the size of the property. 
and then he has to give you his inspection report, that may take a couple of days. And then you gotta review it. So you talking you need a you need a little time to uh to give yourself some time. Like I said again, if you're doing duplex, triplex, fourplex, I would say put something between seven and ten days. Um, but to be proactive, find your inspector before you go um before your offer is accepted, even before you go into contract. Find you an inspector that you like and let them know, hey, I'm going to be buying this property or I might be going to contract pretty soon. What does your schedule look like? So you'll know ahead of time. So the first day that you are under contract, you tell the, um, you have to do a scheduling. So you have to find out when your inspector is available. He'll tell you when he's available. You tell your agent and then they'll have to tell that to the seller's agent. So they'll have to let their tenants know that the property is being inspected on this date and everything is going to get looked at. Right. So, um, what now, because we're talking specifically about FHA, Uh what are the inspection requirements for FHA? Can you like, do you know what that is? Or I guess I should ask, what are, what were the FHA requirements for our property? The Auburn property? What, um, what what happened with that inspection report? Can you give so the audience a little bit of information? You have about that? right. So you have with FHA, you basically going to have two inspections. You're going to have the first inspection, which is the one you pay for, where you find the inspector and he comes out and he looks at everything: roof, plumbing, electrical, inside, all the units, and all that crap. Then after that, once you get past the inspection phase. Then you have the appraisal that comes after. And at the same time, that's when FHA does their inspection. So the appraiser, the HUD appraiser, he actually comes out, inspects the unit, but he also appraises at the same time. So he's looking at, and now when you talk about FHA inspection, they are a little bit more stringent than the conventional. Uh, You know, with conventional loans, the the property could be uh, more, it, not in as great of a shape, and but the loan will still go through. But with FHA, um, they look at little things and they won't let the loan go through until those things are fixed. So on our property specifically, the paint, you know, it needed to be painted on the outside, but there was areas on the fascia near the roof where the wood was rotting, um, it was chipping, the uh, bottom towards the, the, the ground, the base of the of the property uh, was rotting. I wanna say there was termite um, damage or whatever in certain spots, so, um, and then inside- It didn't the, have termites, it just It had. didn't have termites, but I, I, it was chipped. So I can't remember if it was termites or it was just rotting from the rain and everything. Cause I think it was rotting from, rotting from the rain. Okay. Because so, he brought that up because I was asking, I was like, does that, will that affect our foundation? And he's like, no. He's no, like, don't we don't have a lot of foundation mm-hmm. issues, no, right. you know, in the area. Because, you know, you would see that in areas like in Texas or it's places in the Midwest, basically. So um, the other issue, I believe, too, was the ground the dirt and everything was too close to the uh base uh the bottom of the uh <clears throat> the property around the property 
that had to be moved away. Um, the fence, that was another issue. The wooden fence uh, was chipping at the bottom. Um, inside the unit, uh, one of the baseboard heaters inside the bathroom did not work. Um, there was things like that that the FHA inspector saw, who's also do doing their appraisal, noted on the inspection. And until those things got fixed, that you could not go any further with the loan. So FHA is more of the health, safety of this property, but also because they're insuring the loan, um, they're issuing the loan, they want to make sure it's a good investment, you know, excuse me, a good property. So <laughs> when we got the inspection back and our agent sent it to the seller's agent, you know, mind you, they didn't want to fix anything. And, you know, at this point we were... I think two weeks. Yeah, probably, probably two a weeks. A little so. further than two weeks. Maybe a little further than two weeks or so uh, into the contract. And, you know, again, the seller's like, you know, they, they're not trying to fix anything. And we're telling them, hey, this is an FHA loan. These things they're telling us has to be fixed or this loan doesn't go through. We can't go any further. So, and the thing, too, is when FHA does that inspection, those things that they noted that need to be fixed, they will come back out to verify that they're fixed. So they don't just let you say that you fixed it. They come back out and they look and verify that all those things are fixed. So the seller had their handyman come in. He slapped some paint on the outside in certain places. They did fix the uh, the baseboard heater, yeah. which now that I think about it, we paid for we sure did pay, we for, pay that. for that. And to this day, I don't know why we paid for that. But you know what? I think we were so wrapped up in trying to get that deal. It was $45. It was something, but I was saying, yeah. yeah, we paid for it. Don't, you know, I don't advise that, but, you know, we did. But anyway, those things that, you know, the FHA inspector said to be fixed, they did fix, but they didn't really, they fixed it enough to let it pass. And that's all we cared about at the time because we knew that this property needed some work. Um, so we were just kind of in the, in the, hey, just do what they need to be done just so this loan can go through. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hey, listen, sorry to interrupt your podcast listening, but this is going to be a two-part series. This is part one where we took you into making an offer, how to get your offer accepted, and the inspections. Coming to the second part, we're going to be going more into the inspections, what happens afterwards, the do's and the don'ts, and the appraisal phase. So, hey, thank you for tuning in. Come back, listen to the second part. This is Slow Well, and we'll highlight it.